welcome to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. This week we feature a live recording from SaaS.19 as we return to the podcast stage where Philippe Bateri, partner with Axel, interviews G2 co-founder and CEO Goddard Abel. It was a super interesting conversation that followed Goddard's entrepreneurial journey from his first startup, Big Machines, to founding and scaling G2, his fourth. As an experienced entrepreneur, he offered lots of fascinating insights on everything from SaaS pricing, sales, and financing. This is a must-listen for traction, growth, and scale stage founders alike, with tons of practical takeaways. Now over to Philippe. Just before we go to Philippe and Goddard's uh, interview at SaaS Doc 19, uh, just a reminder that the next SaaS Doc that is up is SaaS Doc Australasia, down in Sydney, December the 3rd and the 4th. Bring in our mission to help SaaS companies get traction, grow, and scale with two days of uh, events, bringing the ecosystem, the SaaS ecosystem in Australia and New Zealand together uh, for workshops, uh, day workshops on uh, sales, marketing, and uh, being a better CEO. Uh, and then a day of content, hearing from some of the best in the local ecosystem and from outside. You'll hear from uh, speakers from companies such as Winning by Design, Azura, Intercom, Asana, Deputy, Freshworks, Zero, Zendesk, Employment Hero, Chargeify, Google Cloud, HubSpot, uh, and many more. Uh, it's going to be a great couple of days. If you are in SaaS in Australia and New Zealand, uh, then go to sasdoc.com forward slash Australasia uh, to find out more and get your tickets. And we will hopefully see you there. Now I'm with the show. So welcome, uh, everyone. My name is uh, Philippe Botteri. I'm a partner with uh, Axel, focusing on, uh, on SaaS. Some of my previous uh, investments include companies like DocuSign, Algolia, Doctolib, Snick, and I also work with our US team on uh, CrowdStrike. As uh, some of you may not be familiar with Excel, there are three things I would like you to, um, to remember. The, the first one is that we have built a, a global platform in the US, Europe, and India over, over the past 35 years, and uh, we leverage our network to give, uh, hopefully, an unfair competitive advantage to our portfolio company. Um, I hope Goddard will be able to testify to that mm. at some point. Um, the second thing is like we love SaaS and we have invested around $3.8 billion in 225 SaaS companies over the past 35 years. So this is an area that um, we really like. Um, and the third thing is uh, we invest early. So typically five to $15 million in um, Series A company. And uh, more recently we have added uh, a growth fund so we can also invest larger check at a later stage of um, um, the growth of uh, our companies and we can also invest in later stage opportunities. But enough about me and Axel as um, we're here to listen to, um, to Goddard. So I had the chance to meet uh, Goddard more than a decade ago now uh, when I was in the Valley and he was the founder of CEO of uh, Big Machines. That's, uh, that's a while back. Uh, yes. I still remember uh, these days. Um, I think it was a Dreamforce. Yeah. One of the earlier Dreamforces we met yeah. on the floor there. Exactly, when Dreamforce was uh, 2,000 people. It was about this size. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, a long time ago. And so Big Machines ended up being acquired by Oracle for $400 million. But um, I mean, what is really exceptional about Goddard is that 
he is a true entrepreneur at the heart. So far from retiring, he subsequently started Steelbrick, which was later sold to Salesforce for 360 million. He is now the co-founder and chairman of uh, G2, uh, which is a leading review platform and marketplace for B2B software. So you can see their, their big booth right, uh, right here. So a few stats on uh, G2, it's 4 million uh, monthly unique uh, B2B buyers. Uh, it's uh, 1 million peer reviews and more than $100 million raised by, uh, of course, Axel, and we're a very happy investor. But that's, that's not it, right? You recently uh, invested personally and you're also the chairman of uh, 3Kids. So you're really, uh, really unstoppable. Well, it's not just me. We have what I call an entrepreneurial family, but we have a whole team now that we love building companies together. Okay, wow. That's uh, super impressive, and uh, we'll, we'll go back to that. So, uh, before starting with uh, the first uh, question, I really want to make sure this session is uh, interactive. So, for the people in the audience, feel free to jump in at uh, any time and um, ask, uh, ask your, your questions. So, just so I understand who is in the audience, like how many SaaS founders are in the audience right now? Okay, there's uh, quite a few. That's, uh, that's good. Um, right, so let's get into it. Um, so Goddard, you have so many companies under your belt right now, and for all of them, you have been really part of the, the founding stage uh, of the company. So as a, a lot of the, the, the companies here at Sastock had sub a million in AR and just starting in the journey, so tell us about the, the do's and don'ts, and, and maybe starting with uh, product market fit, which you know, it's the hardest thing for a company at the beginning. True, and I do think it starts with solving a problem you really understand and know. And I think that's one nice thing in the business world. You know, ideally you have some prior business experience and you're really trying to solve a personal problem. And that's true with G2. And the personal problem we were trying to solve when I built my first company, Big Machines and Steelbrick, actually G2 didn't exist. And it was really hard to get validation. I had to rely on Gartner, Forrester. And the problem with that as an entrepreneur it took many years. And so what we wanted to do with G2 is create something that could be very real time. And frankly, I didn't like talking to analysts. So we said, hey, let's give all the power to the customers. Because as an entrepreneur, like most entrepreneurs, we love talking to customers. We want to solve their problems. We want to create a great product for our customers. And so that was really the goal of G2 is, hey, let's create that. And so I think it's key that you have a problem you really understand. Because people talk about A-B testing. But I think as an entrepreneur at the beginning, you don't have a lot of resources. So I almost think you have to pick A or B. Yeah. You know, and, and you kind of have to get it somewhat right. You're not going to get it perfect, but right enough that you're actually going to solve a business problem that's going to add value. And so you can go sell you know, some of those initial customers yourself and then with some iteration. And it does take a year or two. I, mean, I think G2 it took a little bit over two years until we truly got the product market fit. In our case, it's probably even a bit harder. It's more of a marketplace model. We had to get enough reviews, which then drove enough Google, which drove enough buyers where we could finally get the vendors interested. So, and uh, I think about it's a delicate process, and the thing I learned the hard way, my first company, Big Machines, I still started way back in the dot-com era. So frankly, I raised too much money at the very beginning of that company. First year, I raised 20 million, and then frankly, I squandered most of it before I got to product market fit. Hmm. And that was really dumb in hindsight, and it was really painful, because then I had to scale the company back down from 70 people to 20. And so that was a big mistake I made the first time, is trying to accelerate sales before product market fit. And so it's certainly a lesson I learned. And so I think in that product market phase at the beginning, you want to stay very small, I believe. You know, have a couple engineers, have the founders selling. 
until those initial customers are happy, until they'll write reviews for you on G2, and then you can start thinking about building the sales team. But until then, it's kind of more survival mode. And, and how, how do you, because entrepreneurs, like, they have a very strong belief about the, the problem they're solving. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? And so, when do you think it's time to throw the towel? Like, if you can't find, you know, you're looking for your product market fits, but you, you just can't find it. Like, what time do you think an entrepreneur should start to rethink and say, well, maybe now is the time to pivot and, and do something which is adjacent but different because clearly what I'm doing is not working? Or do you think it's just a matter of perseverance and at some point it will come? And I'm more in the perseverance camp. And I think this is kind of my attitude. I also run marathons and it's just like, hey, we're going to find a way. And so my adjustments have been more gradual. You know, but staying committed to that initial vision is something I've done in all my companies. And so I think it's, and the team shares it, and hopefully, knock on wood, you know, we haven't had a failure because we've made gradual pivots, but always staying committed to that initial founding vision because we believe in it so much. And then I do think the customers will ultimately guide you and they feel your passion. And even if your product's not quite right, they'll tell you how to tweak it, how to tune the features until it adds the value. And so I think picking a problem set you're so committed to and you know it's a problem it needs solved and then just sticking with it, I do think can work. And obviously the mistake that was almost feel my first company, obviously you can't spend too much money until you have proof. And the only proof is really customers are paying you, right? And then you know you can start to scale. And, and were there a time in, you know, for any of your companies where you were you know, really at, at you know, looking into the abyss and we say, you know, it's like one more wrong step and you know, we're down. And, were you at that point, and if so, like, what did you do to overcome that path, and you know, what did it take for you to kind of go to the next step, overcome the obstacle, and then go to, uh, to greatness? And it was in 2003 with my first company, Big Machines, and I mentioned that first year, 2000, we raised 20 million. You know, two years later, we only had about a million in revenue run rate, and we still were burning, I don't know, 200,000, $300,000 a month, and I was down to about a million in money. So it was kind of obvious, and no investor was going to give us more money. They'd actually written this off. They'd stopped coming to board meetings. You know, they're like, oh, these guys, it's a write-off, maybe a tax savings. And, and then we were just kind of at the point, either do we give back the last million, you know, or do we try to go organic? And that was really painful, because then we scaled the company down to 20 people, got our burn rate down to about 100,000 a month, which we figured gave us about a year. And then we just said, hey, in that year, we have to sell enough deals that we get profitable. And, uh, and that was a hard decision, but my co-founder and I, Chris, and we only had about 10 customers, manufacturers. We also picked a, a bad vertical in hindsight. In 2003, selling SaaS to manufacturers was darn near impossible. Um, but we, we did scale down, and it was really just our intuition, and he was my best friend from college, and we both just said, we saw our initial customers getting enough value, we're like, we just don't want to quit. And we did the painful thing, we laid off another 20 people, took it down to the 20 essential people, and then we made it happen. We went out, sold enough deals that year, and then we got to cash flow positive. And so by the time you and I met in 2007, the rest of Big Machines was cash flow positive and actually got up to 10 million in positive EBITDA eventually. So it was, uh, but it was a long struggle. Nice, but very successful story, yeah. So once you have a pro the product market fit, I found that for a lot of companies there is a you know, pricing is a very hard question to solve. And there are two things about pricing. There is one, what is the right structure of the pricing? 
And there is a second question which is, what is the level of the pricing? And, and there is a trade-off between you know, being cheap so you can really get fast adoption versus trying to optimize the values that you create. And the issue being that if you start too low, then it's harder to go high and then capture and get to this seven-figure deals that you know, any company selling to enterprise will want to get to at some point. So if you look at the different companies that you've started, how did you think about pricing at the beginning and how did that um, pricing evolve over time? And my first company, Big Machines, I was still SaaS 1.0, and frankly, the hardware, everything was expensive. So we started with a high price point, which I think in hindsight was a mistake, where sort of our minimum was 100,000 a year, or about 10,000 a month for these manufacturers. And that made it even harder to sell, but we felt we needed it to kind of cover our costs. But I think that was a mistake. And then when we started Steelbrick, it was very different. There we just went with $45 a user a month. And our competitor at the time, Aptus, they're pricing over $100, but we were trying to disrupt them, so we intentionally started low. And we actually also said, though, no discounts. We just said, hey, we know it's a great price, it's better on competition, so we didn't discount. We just said, hey, let's just get deals. And we did that probably for about our first 100 customers. So really, like, you had a price list and there was no discount? No discount. And never. we published it and we're like, hey, we know this is cheaper than the competition, that's intentional, we think it's a better product, we want you to try it. But that, that did you lose deal for that? Because it's so unusual in software to not have discounts. So some customer will just expect a discount. Like, if you look at the old Oracle database pricing, it was like 85% discount on the list price. I mean, True. that's how a lot of these buyers have been educated. So if you're a startup and you come to a large company and say, you know what, this is our price, we have no discount. Like, how do you convince them that you know, there is not this, because there's always this feeling of if I don't get a discount, it means I'm not getting the right price. So how do you go over that? Right, and we had, I mean, in the beginning we had some experienced sales reps also we brought over from big machines, you know, that's had the confidence. And we knew, we knew the market, and we knew it was a good price. And so, you know, so we, we stuck to it. Um, and so we started low, and then the next evolution was, and we knew this was our strategy, then later we started launching another edition you know, where we added features that were more quote unquote enterprise, right? Probably a standard playbook that went to $75. And then eventually we had a product at $120 a user. And we also started more mid-market in SMB. And I think in mid-market SMB, it's also easier to just hold the line on price. Hey, it is what it is. And then we created those new additions with higher price points. So then we got to the $120 price point. This was probably about a year or two later. And then we did start playing the enterprise game more. You know, I remember one of our first big customers then was LinkedIn. And they did, they did break us down. I remember their first ones. And we really wanted the logo, because our first enterprise. So they broke our pricing discipline. But at least we had a much higher list price we could start off of. And, uh, and so that, that worked well. And then at G2, it's also been interesting. And we sell a marketing solution. Obviously, we're a review platform. So entrepreneurs, you can list your products for free. You can get reviews. You can get rated for free. Because I didn't want to be like Gartner. You don't have to pay us. You don't have to talk to us you can be number one on our grids just by great reviews. So it's free to start. And then we've always had premium marketing solutions where if you want to get all our intent data, upgrade your profile with calls to action, use our content on other sites, then you start paying us. And we dabbled, and we probably went a bit too high, but then we went really low. We started at hey, just $1,000 a year fixed, very low entry point, and we said, hey, and then you pay incremental per lead. That was kind of how we started. And that actually worked, and we started getting our first 50 paid customers. This was about two years in. We're like, okay, and then we just started gradually increasing it, where that same price point now is $10,000 to start. Nice. And, uh, and obviously we added more value, more traffic, more brand, and now we have much higher price points, 
Now we also added additions where for a startup it starts at 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. For enterprise, for one product, it now goes 30, 60, 90. And how, how do you get your first customers to the new pricing? Because that, that's it's harder to convince people that what they were paying, you know, 10 carrier is now worth 50 carrier. But True. Um, and some of our customers are probably here. So, and we haven't convinced all of them. And I did see Jason Lemkin just say this on Twitter, and I, I kind of agree with him. I think you can gradually increase pricing for your legacy customers, but you don't want to overdo it. You know, yeah. we say, hey, over two or three years, because you value, we value them, and they bet on us early. So we try to get more, hey, over three years, can we do a three-year deal and migrate you up? I think that's a great strategy, where, hey, year one will only increase 10%. Let us just increase you 10% a year, and eventually get you there. But ultimately, it's some of a rounding error, because we have so much TAM, and so your first 100 customers yeah, don't, don't matter that much, right? Because you want to get your next thousand. And, and so you, I think we try to manage that gradually for the existing customers. And how, how do you think about freemium versus free trial? Because I know for, I mean, a lot of the products that uh, the company here are, um, you know, are making, they're you know, super easy to use. Can, you can, it's SaaS, it's online, you can try it yourself. But then there's always this question of, well, should I give a 30-day trial to a customer and then convert to pay? And I know, I'm, you know some of them are going to drop, but at least you know, the one I get, they're paying, versus having a freemium where that it's actually hard to have, you know, if someone has been used to a product for free, they naturally expect more for this product, but still for free. And then you know, it can be very hard to convert them and, and get into revenue, which actually is something you need to grow your business, right? So how do you think about this trade-off and how did you de design the, the freemium offering on G2? And, and I think it depends whether you have a network effect business or not. So G2, we do have freemium forever versus free trial, but that's also because it adds to our database there's data value from the freemium customers because obviously those vendors add all their product information, they update the catalog. So now for software buyers, the G2 catalog's more complete. We have 100,000 products and still 98,000 of them are free. But we like that because when the shopper comes and like Gartner's exclusionary, they only have 10 people in the quadrant, we want every single vendor in the world available to the buyer. So it helps us, yeah. there's a data value to us and so I think we keep them freemium forever. Whereas when we're building a CPQ business, where there's no network effect, there's no residual data value, then we always did the free trial model, and hey, try it for 30 days. And so I think it depends to me on the nature of your app, and because I think if you don't have a network effect, I prefer the trial, and then just try to convert them then, because if it went in 30 days, you don't have conviction, you know, why let them keep limping yeah. along? Okay, no, that, um, that makes sense. So now you have, um, you have your product market fits, you have the right pricing model, so now you need to sell. Mm -hmm. um, typically, I mean, we observe that a lot of founders are coming from the technical and product side, and you know, hiring that first salesperson is actually very, um, you know, can be quite uh, challenging because salespeople they're good at selling and they're good mm -hmm. at selling themselves. Yes. Um, so, how do you like if you're a first-time founder? Like, how do you screen? How do you interview? that first salesperson? Like, what is the profile that you should be looking for and how do you make sure that this is, you know, the right level of talent for, for your company? And it's something I also did wrong three times my first company, Big Machines. I went through three VPs of sales and that was super painful. That was part of almost going bankrupt. And frankly, in hindsight, it was also premature. But I think the mistake I made, I hired too senior of a profile 
because I remember I hired one leader who came from JD Edwards at the time, very proven ERP software company, but he just didn't pivot to the startup world. And then finally what I wound up with was Matt Gorniak, who at the time I just hired like, he was like 28, you know, very fresh. He'd sold a couple things, but not really. And so I think early on you want much more, I think that kind of up and comer, you know, they have some experience selling, but they really believe and, you know, will go through walls because in the beginning it's all about energy and belief. There's no repeatable process, you have no brand, nobody knows who you are. So they just think you need incredible energy, passion, conviction. And I think that tends to be more in the up and comers, right? So don't hire a proven leader, don't hire a leader at all, right? Just hire, and ideally you'd hire two pioneer reps, right? Just very energetic, up and comers, that really believe in your mission. They want to prove themselves, because they see it as their breakthrough. Because what I always tell them is, hey, and if you do a great job, people will be a great leader, you can become a leader here. Whereas if you're working at Salesforce, right, it may take you five, six, seven, eight, nine years to become a leader. Here, if you crush it, you're a great leader, you can become a leader much more quickly. And so I think that's kind of what I've learned. That's what we did at G2. We hired actually a bunch of relatively young kids, I'll call them, kind of early 20s, like our first four or five reps, and they didn't really know what they're doing, but they had a ton of energy, passion, belief, and just kind of figured it out together. And I think that's, that's what you need at the beginning. And then later, you know, sort of, and that's kind of gets you like zero to one, to two, to three, five million, let's say. And then obviously eventually you get to the point where you need a leader. If you're lucky, and I had this with my first company, Big Machines, or Matt, he also turned into leader, and you know, that's kind of lucky, right? But then obviously sometimes at that point you have to bring in more of a leader that can then build a team. And, and then I think it gets harder again, now G2 are going through this where you need many leaders. It's another hard transition. First, you just need to get somebody who can sell something, or two people that can sell something. Then you need to get one leader that can run a team of five or six. That can probably get you to 10 million plus. And then all of a sudden now you need a leader that can build many teams. And that's a whole nother leader, typically. And Matt has been able to scale across all levels, but that's very rare. And, and I think that's a challenge for a founder. And it was hard for me also, I was more of an engineer consultant. I didn't really know what sales meant. And so I got it wrong three times before I got it right. But maybe you can help there, Philippe, as a good VC advisor, because you guys see this more. But it's still hard, right, to get that first seller, the first sellers that, that can fit the startup. It is very hard, especially for European companies which are trying to make that hire in the US. Mm. Uh, because you go into the US and all the salesperson you interview, they're all president's club, multiple mm. times. Mm. They've all made their quarter, and even more than their quarter, mm. like you know, 30% more. They're all the you know, top salesperson in their company. Mm. So it, it's actually very hard to really screen for what is real versus mm. what is just you know, good presentation. Um, what are the two or three key questions you would ask a salesperson just to kind of drill down and really understand if they have actually achieved what they claim that they have achieved? Yeah. And one thing I'd be afraid of if they've only sold successfully for big companies like Salesforce, LinkedIn, great companies, right? And they have made club there, but they've never been part of a startup. I'd be very scared to make them my first hire. So it's very mutual. Because yeah, we don't realize when you're at Salesforce, you have such a big brand behind you. And frankly, there's such a demand gen engine, right? And then it's so different, all of a sudden you're in a startup, right? Because the biggest problem you have in a startup, like you call people, they're like, who are you? Why are you calling me? You know, whereas when you're at Salesforce, they're like, oh yeah, I already know about you. You know, you're kind of just managing yeah. a deal and actually having the energy to create that. So I think I, would, I wouldn't take that risk as my first hire, like let's say in the US, right? I would hire someone that's been in the startup, maybe even failed. And actually oftentimes what I like is someone that was at a big company, had a lot of success, went to a startup, had a misstep, the startup failed, but they're kind of masochistic enough they want to do it again. And, uh, and so I think that's key. But I think at that beginning, it's really you got to test for energy and like do they want to go through walls? I remember one true story about Matt Gorniak, our CRO at G2. Our first office was a crappy little office in Chicago for G2. 
and we were leaving the office like after two years and we looked under his desk and there was a hole in the wall. And we're like, Matt, what happened, right? We're gonna have to like, we're not gonna get back our security deposit. He's like, yeah, it was kind of like one night I was like emailing everyone in my network till like 3 a.m. asking them to write reviews and to keep myself awake, I was kicking the wall. And there was like a hole this big. So as many nights he was doing that. And I think that's the kind of energy you need at the beginning. And so I think it's really mainly about energy and are they smart, can they learn? But I don't think it's about experience. It's about energy and willingness to learn with you. And frankly, people that don't think they're proven yet, they have something to prove. They still want to kick through the wall. So that, that's the learning. So make sure you hire people with energy and make sure that you're building as strong walls. Yeah, Keep strong you. walls or, yeah, or maybe it's good for them. Like it's a good energy outlet. <laughs> Let them break through the wall. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, a, lo a lot of the, uh, the mistakes that, that we see is that people tend to hire as a first hire a VP sale. Yeah, and, don't do that. And a VP sale is someone who knows how to manage, you know, a team, as you mentioned, five, six people, but may not be the person who wants to go back to be a single contributor and, and, and kind of break through these walls and repeat the same story like 20 times a day yes. until you actually get to that customer. Um, so that's kind of the second step, but as you say, you first need to hire these four or five super high energy salespeople, and then you can think about hiring a leader. And when you hire that VP sales, I think one of the um, interesting questions for me to ask is just make sure that, and that's something you, you, you talked about, is that that person is going to be generating pipeline and is not going to wait for marketing or someone else to generate the pipeline for him. True. And that's why I think it's always interesting at the beginning, even when you have a VP sales managing four or five people to give him a quota as well to make sure that he can go himself after mm -hmm. his customers and think about pipeline generation as something that he owns, not, not something that someone else in the organization owns. Yeah, or rule of thumb now we have a G2, is ideally it's half sales generated pipeline, half marketing. Yeah. So they're both doing their part. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, that, that's I think a good ratio, I think the more enterprise focused you are, in my experience, I think uh, uh, the more that ratio tends to be two-thirds sales, one-third uh, marketing, and then the more you go towards SMBs, then the higher that percentage of marketing trade leads uh, lead is, right? So, and you are in between, because you sell across all, all segments. Um, True. So, we've talked about hiring sales people, so now, what about, uh, I mean, we have five minutes left and we haven't talked about financing and I think it's obviously something um, which is quite important for, for a young startup. So, I mean, you have raised, what, more than 200, 300 million in venture? Something like that, yeah. In venture capital, that's a lot of money, a lot of pitches. So, what would be the, you know, your, your do's and don'ts when you, uh, when you pitch a, a VC, especially kind of at the early stage of, um, uh, of the company? Yeah, now it's very different, frankly, now it's very easy. Now my rule is like, don't pitch anyone let them come to you. But I think you can only do that as a proven entrepreneur, because I remember my first company, Big Machines, I did meet probably like 50 or 100, and almost all of them said no. It's actually super painful. Especially, I remember in 2000, raising money as the dot-com bubble was starting to melt down. That was super hard. I probably pitched like 50. And I finally found one that had a new fund, wow. which was actually Vista Equity. And now their founder, Robert Smith, has become quite famous because he pivoted into private equity. Yep. And frankly, I like to say I scared him out of the venture business because he made three venture investments at the end of 2000. The other two actually went bankrupt. We almost did. And then he was actually very smart and he pivoted his whole fund toward let's just start buying companies because companies got really cheap 2001, 2002 and he's built a very successful firm. 
So, but that was very hard. Um, and obviously at the beginning what I did, what I'd still recommend, I first had some angel investors. Like my first job was at McKinsey, so one of the partners there invested. I had my father invest, which actually later was quite scary. So I really didn't want to go bankrupt and quit because I was going to lose my dad's money. That was very personal. And then, so I, I just had people from my network invest first. And I do think that's almost your only chance, right? If you need seed angel, the people have to know you. Because at the beginning, as you know, investing is very personal. Yeah. At the beginning, really, the, the investor has to trust you. It's a very trust-based business. And so the other thing I would recommend, even with VCs, and I know you recommend this, you have to get to know them. It's also a bit like dating, right? Like on the first date, you're probably not going to get married. Right, so I think building, and I, this is still something I do today, even as a proven entrepreneur, I always build relationships with VCs. Partly they can also add to the, VC, the network effect of G2, but then ideally we've known each other for months or a year or two, had multiple meetings, and you're kind of letting them know, you're starting to share, here's how my business is progressing, here's what I expect to get. And so then when I call you, you know, six, 12 months later, it's like, hey, we already know each other, and by the way, Philippe, just like I told you, Business is now taking off. I have all of a sudden down interest, right? If you want it, now's the time. And by the way, you have to come to my office. I'm not coming to yours. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, I totally agree that relationship is key. I mean, if I look at the investment I've, I've made uh, personally, I mean, a lot of these investments have been with companies where I had relationship for more than 18 months. Uh, and I think it's very important on both sides because on the uh, on the venture side, you can actually start to get you get to know the entrepreneur. You hear what he says. You see if he delivers what he says. Uh, and um, and from the uh, the entrepreneur side, you can also see you know what is it like to work with that person. How responsive is that person when I ask him some question? Uh, if I'm some introduction, you know, because that's typically when we invest. Like we invest over you know eight to ten years in right. a company. So it's not it's not marriage. Yeah. But it's a pretty long relationship. It's and actually longer than the average marriage in America. Wow. I say that. I didn't know I that. The average marriage is like seven years. The average VC investment, eight to 10 years. Okay, so uh, <laughs> now he here we go. It's uh, longer than, uh, than marriage. Um, so it, it's actually super important to really get to know the, um, get to know the people well. Mutually, and it, sure. it's not, um, you know, it's not about just adding a logo and try to get to the higher price, um, you know, and biggest round. I mean, I think, which in this environment, I think it's a pretty um, healthy, I would say, environment. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to be attracted by big numbers and high valuation, but at the end of the day, it's going to be a relationship for eight to 10 years, right? Yes. And you know, you're not going to, you know, you'll have to live with it every day, and so that's something you really need to pay uh, attention to. Right. And even now, frankly, I don't like pitching. So frankly, like my recent financings, like with Excel, frankly, it was somewhat inbound from you guys, but I already knew a couple of your partners from many years ago. And, uh, and then, frankly, I didn't go to anyone else, and that's what I almost always do now. And I obviously, I'll negotiate a bit, but because it saves you so much time. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and, and you make a fair deal, because also going too high, and people say this, but it can also hurt you. Because if your business doesn't go perfectly, right, and people say all this, it's true, and some entrepreneurs are skeptical, why not just maximize price? But I think it's a waste of time, and it can set you up the wrong way for you know the future. Yeah, no, I totally, uh, totally agree with that. Uh, like we're in an environment where things have been up and uh, to the right for the past what you know ten years now, which is probably one of the longest uh, bull run of the markets. Uh, but at some point, uh, and that point may not be too far. I mean, things will start to uh, to adjust. Yeah, and I also experienced that my first company, we did end up doing a down round in like 2003 just to like save the business. And it's also very painful for everyone. Yeah. 
and then the dilution gets massive, so it's not something I want to do again. Yeah, it's, if you can avoid it, it's much better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you uh, very much, Goddard. Really, uh, really enjoyed the, the discussion, and congrats again for uh, all your successes. Thank you, and we're just getting started, and glad to have your support. And one last plug, G2. We're spending a lot of Excel's money on the beautiful booth, but we want to get it back, so please come see us. And as an entrepreneur, I really think G2, and you can start for free, and it gives you global validation, so please list your product, encourage your customers to share. And thank you for coming. Yeah, and we'll share, um, so tomorrow we'll do our keynotes uh, where we're going to present the top 100 SaaS companies in, um, in Europe. And we'll see the importance of G2. I mean, we have some uh, impressive stat on G2 scores and how the companies on this list have actually much higher G2 score than the one that uh, are not. So, True. Uh, and that's maybe one last plug. The VCs, including Philippe Excel, they actually use our data to find companies. And actually, this is true of global VCs. So it's actually one of the best ways also to get your product in front of VCs. Because I think it now it shows up in almost all VC pitches. At least that's what Arun tells me. Indeed. All right, okay. thank you. Take care. Up. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show featuring Philippe Terry from Axel and Goddard Abel from G2. You may well see them again at SaaS.20 in Dublin uh, in October 2020. Uh, but before that, we'll be taking the SaaS doc mission to Australia, uh, for SaaS Australasia uh, on December the 3rd and the 4th. And uh, you'll see G2 there. Uh, we'll have workshops on the 3rd, a sales workshop, a mark, uh, growth marketing workshop and a CEO workshop, followed by a welcome party. And then on the 4th, we'll have a day of conference and roundtables, meetings and expo. Uh, this will be at Dalton House in Sydney, and we're there to, to help the SaaS companies get traction, grow and scale. You'll be hearing from uh, speakers from companies uh, such as Freshworks, Zero, HubSpot, uh, Salesforce Ventures, Asana, uh, G2, as I mentioned, uh, the list goes on. So the, the who's who uh, of SaaS will be there and speaking to, to help SaaS companies within the local ecosystem grow their businesses. So see you December the 3rd and the 4th in Sydney, Australia.